Hey everyone, before we get into tonight's stories, I just want to let everyone know, in case you didn't know, um, audio-only versions of every single one of my videos is available over on Anchor. It's always the very first link in the top of the description. It'll take you over to the episode, and you can just listen to it there. Audio-only, you don't have to worry about running up your mobile data, you don't have to worry about keeping your phone on and draining your battery, whatever. If you need it for, like, third shift work, I used to do third shift work, I know how it is. So having just the audio, it's really, really great, so you don't drain your battery trying to listen to a YouTube video. Uh, Every video, probably in the past couple years, has been uploaded there, audio only. So if you're looking for something to listen to for, like, an entire 12-hour shift, I got you taken care of. Just go down there, click that first link at the top of the description, and check out Anchor. And the graveyard shift with Mr. Davis. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks again, everyone. Let's hop into tonight's stories. Call me macabre, but I've always been fascinated with hangings. It's not that I want to watch someone die, it's that I enjoy the history surrounding public executions. Every hanging site has its own tale to tell, and there are hundreds to explore across North America many of which are open to the public. There's this indescribable thrill that comes with standing in an old building knowing that not so long ago, people were climbing over one another to watch criminals die and cheering as it happens. So really, if anyone's macabre, it's them, not me. The experience I'm sharing today is my favorite. I don't want to be cheesy and say it chills me to this day, but it is the hanging site I visited that has left the biggest impression on me. You know that high you get from reading a good horror story? That usually fades with time, but what I experienced there is as potent now as it was then. Let me tell you about the noose of the hanged men. And yes, that's men. Plural. About a year ago, I was in Nova Scotia on business when I learned of a little-known hanging side down in a small port town about an hour and a half away from Halifax. Given my aforementioned interest in the subject, I decided to use my day off to visit. I had to go through a few hoops, but after speaking with the tourism office, I was put in touch with someone from the town's historical society who agreed to give me a tour. That's how I wound up late one cloudy afternoon standing at the edge of a seemingly abandoned property with Ainsley Murray as my own personal tour guide. A couple dozen keys jangled on Ainsley's keychain as she reached for the one to unlock the front gate. The gate was tall and wide, with ornate curly cues ending in pointed spades, reminding me of a cemetery. Beyond it was an unkempt lawn with yellowed grass reaching up about knee height, an overgrown stone path, and the main attraction a partially collapsed brick building with a central watchtower. I was excited. Ainsley tried another key, but it wouldn't even go in all the way. Tell me we're not going to need all those keys. Ainsley laughed, deepening the creases of her crow's feet. (laughs) Oh, heavens no, dear. She tried her tenth, or was it her eleventh, key. They're all for different buildings. I just like to keep everything on the same chain. Otherwise, I always forget one. Oh, don't worry. I've only ever gotten locked in twice, and my assistant Muriel got us out within a day or so both times. There was hardly a need to resort to cannibalism. 
She grinned sheepishly. I snorted and replied, Annalise, I like you already. Thanks, love, but keep your lustful thoughts to yourself. I've been happily married for 39 years. She winked and then tried the next key. Ah, I think this is the one. The lock clicked and the gate screeched open. Flakes of paint peeled off at the slightest touch and exposed a rusted underbelly. For a property supposedly maintained by a historical society, it sure didn't look like anyone had given it any kind of attention in ages. Watch your step, dear. The ground's a little uneven, Ainsley warned. I was starting to feel it. That dread and excitement when you're watching a movie and you know a jump scare is about to happen. There was something in the air, and the way the wind blew through the brush and the crows cawed like a storm of adrenaline was brewing. Ainsley motioned to the other end of the property. Let's turn the courtyard around back while the weather's still good. Then I'll take you inside and show you the cells. I replied, <laughs> sounds good. Ainsley led the way through the grass, not seeming to mind the fact that we couldn't see our feet. I guess it's easy to be brave in tall grass when you know there are no venomous snakes in the Canadian Maritimes, something I wish she told me then so I wouldn't have been quite as wary. So, what do you know about this place? I asked. She glanced back at me and smiled. This prison was built in the late 1860s and was originally charged with holding prisoners in transit for public execution in Halifax. In 1875, Warden Murray, no relation to me, there were a lot of Murrays around these parts, claimed he'd been given permission to perform executions. What do you mean, claimed? She tapped a finger to her bottom lip. He alleged he'd received the go-ahead after a fire in Halifax, but there's no historical evidence to corroborate that. Now, it could be that those records were destroyed over the years, perhaps during the Halifax explosion, but as far as we can surmise, there were no reports of a fire that year, nor of such a permission being granted. We circled around the collapsed part of the building. The interior walls were still standing, but the facade had crumbled like a sandcastle. Erosion due to flooding, Annalise revealed later. They'd reinforced the rest of the structure, but had never bothered rebuilding, as the destruction had occurred during the pocket of time after the prison had been decommissioned, but before it had been named a local historical site. So Warden Murray began performing executions here at the prison? Annalise nodded. That's right, just around here. We turned the corner to the courtyard. The tall grass was interlaced with large patches of dry earth which surrounded the gallows. Years of salt air and rainwater had eaten away at the lumber like old plywood shed, but it still stood. There was the base with the stairs leading up to it, two large poles on either side, and a splintered beam stretching across. The rope was missing, but it had left a groove in the wood from the weight of multiple executions. Something was off. The door was missing. I asked, You said he started in 1875, right? She nodded. I inspected the structure closer. Maybe the door was blending into the rest of the wood? The more I looked, the more convinced I became that it was missing. There were no seams, just straight planks going all the way across. But there's no door, I said. My eyes scanned the overhead beam and landed on the spot where the rope would have hung. The groove and discoloration could only be seen along the top quarter. 
Were they hoisting in 1875? Annalise smirked. According to reports, it was Murray's favorite technique. I felt chills of excitement intertwined with hints of dread. Here's the thing. There are a handful of techniques to hang people. By 1870, most of Canada started adopting the long drop technique, that one you're probably most familiar with. The prisoner standing on the gallow with a noose around their neck, a door opens under them, they fall, the neck breaks. And then they pass out. They suffocate while unconscious, which is considered more humane. Hoisting, on the other hand, is a lot more barbaric. The criminal starts on the ground. A rope gets tossed over a high beam tied to their neck. And then they pull the other end to... You guessed it. Hoist the person up by their neck. The process can be excruciatingly painful according to reports from survivors. Yes, you can survive this. And it can last upwards of 10, sometimes 15 minutes if the person struggles in the right way. That's sick, I said. And yet you're smiling, she answered. Sorry, I can't help it. She waved a dismissive hand. Don't worry, I'm not judging. She motioned to the courtyard. Hangings are a morbid business, but somehow they always drew people in. They were especially popular here, feeding a need from the local folk who could make it to Halifax. And according to reports, the warden liked to hold surprise executions. He'd climb to the top of the watchtower early in the morning and ring a bell to signal a hanging. Once the courtyard filled up, he'd order the kill. He'd watch from above, waving at the crowd like an emperor at the Colosseum. I looked at the watchtower and felt a knot in my stomach as I saw three shapes looking back at me. I blinked, and they were gone. Just the clouds, I told myself. Just dark clouds peeking from the other side of the tower, right? Ainsley, as though reading my mind, leaned in close and whispered, You know, dear, there's a rumor the tower's haunted by a ghost of many faces. I shuddered. You're making that up to mess with me. She shook her head. You can ask around yourself. It's been spotted a few times in recent years. Last year, it was seen by a group of teenagers who jumped the fence. A few raindrops fell. I asked, What does it look like? She replied, Some say a fisherman, others say a man in prison garbs. Everyone agrees its face changes every time you look away. One second he has a beard, the next he's bald with a scar across his eye, and so on. See? This kind of stuff? This is why I visit these sites. Does he attack? I asked. She shrugged. Some say those who see it are doomed to hang themselves. Others say it's all a myth. She raised her hands, palm up towards the sky. It's starting to rain. Let's head inside, shall we? I nodded. Gaslights were still mounted to the walls, but they'd run dry ages ago. Thankfully, Annalise and I had the foresight to bring flashlights with us. We visited the cells with their low ceilings, tight walls, old chamber pots, and beds made out of dry straw. Then, the chapel, just a room with a cross. And finally, the offices. 
She shared more history about the region and the prison, but I won't bore you with the details, as they're not relevant to this story. I think you'll find this room quite interesting, Annalise said as she stopped at the door to the watchtower. So far, the rooms had all been interesting, so I was eager to see why she felt that one was special. She fumbled with her keychain and began another round of guessing which key fit the lock. It didn't take too long this time. The lock clicked, she opened the door, and I immediately felt this odd suffocating feeling like I just inhaled a cloud of volcanic ash. Welcome to the watchtower, Annalise said. There's nothing brave about stepping into a dark room in the middle of a century-old prison. Logically, there's no real danger. It's only scary if you trick yourself into believing it is, but really, an old building is just an old building. And even though I knew this, and even though I'd walked into many old buildings before without issue, I found myself hesitating. My feet were cement blocks, and the threshold was a force field pushing me back. I had no idea where the apprehension was coming from, only that it was overwhelming and palpable. Oh dear, worn out already? Annalise teased playfully. We can go back if you'd like. I shook the nervousness from my body like a dog drawing himself. No, sorry, just lost in thought. I lied. I stepped inside and felt a wave of vertigo as I looked up. The watchtower was only about three stories high, but the spiral staircase landing up and the way the room narrowed closer to the top made it feel like it stretched as high as a lighthouse. It took me a moment for the lightheadedness to clear and for me to notice the object dangling halfway up. A noose. A very large noose. Squinting, I circled around, trying to figure out if it was a trick of angles or if it really was that large. The more I looked, the less it seemed like an optical illusion. Why... The words caught in my throat. Why is that so big? Annalise inhaled deeply as though to scream, but what came out wasn't a scream. It was a story. That love is the noose of the hanged men. You see, the key for this tower was actually lost for the longest time. It was only once the Historical Society began looking into the prison that it was discovered in the ruined West Wing in the Warden's office. It's since been moved. But there was a chest here. She pointed to a spot on the foot of the wall. The bricks there were brighter than the ones surrounding it. In it, we found the Warden's journals. He was... She narrowed her eyes. A very sadistic man. I circled around the room again, trying to look at the news from every angle. There was something captivating about it, like a tire swing of death. Annalise continued. He was obsessed with figuring out how many people he could hang with a single noose. I blinked. 
You mean before having to replace the rope? She shook her head. No. Not the amount of hangings he could perform. The amount of people he could hang at the same time. The statement took my breath away. Hanging more than one person from a single noose at once, could it even be done? She motioned to her neck. He started big. Ten people. He wrapped the noose around their throats and hoisted. Took five guards to lift the weight, but the cord snapped before they could see what would happen. Tried again with nine people, and this time the cord held. Unfortunately, with nine shoulders pushing the heads apart, there were gaps. It was impossible to make the noose tight enough to hold all the heads in. People slipped through the cracks, making room for more people to slip through until they all did. I tried to imagine what it felt like to stand in a semicircle with nine other people, and I swear I could feel the rope around my neck. I wondered how it felt to be lifted. Certain you and everyone else was about to die, only to slip to freedom. Would it be a relief? Or would it be horrific? So we started at ten, and then nine, and went down from there? She nodded. He tried eight. Same problem. And then seven, and then six. His experiments caused some damage. The fewer people being hanged, the longer it took for someone to slip free. It all got worse when his subjects dwindled to five. Why is that? Well, by five, he was able to pull all prisoners high into the air before any of them were able to slip out. If you didn't die hanged, you would die from the fall, she explained. So, five was the lucky number. It was weird. It felt like we were being watched. I kept looking up at the top of the watchtower, expecting to see someone staring back down at me. No, dear. He wanted people to die from the noose. Not the fall. He got stuck on five for a while. He was sure it was a question of trying the noose the right way. He was determined to make it work, but he had a limiting amount of prisoners to play with. I winced. What did he do when he ran out? She took a seat on the staircase and glanced up at the noose. The room, despite being exposed to fresh air from above, felt stale and suffocating. Annalise said, Warden Murray began collecting people he didn't think would be missed. Homeless people, transients, anyone who didn't have a family or wandered too close to the prison. I rubbed the back of my neck. Damn. Now, this may be unrelated, but I've uncovered reports of whole families going missing around that time, their belongings untouched as though they'd been taken in the middle of the night. I can't confirm good old Warren Murray was involved, but it is interesting how the timelines match up. Purely conjecture on my part, of course, but how many transients can you kill before you run out? And still, 
with all that death, none of his five-person experiments worked. I felt like a boa constrictor was trying to hug my esophagus. Why was the air here so thick? Murray, Murray sounded like a sick bastard. My voice was hoarse, was dehydrated. Annalise nodded. He was. It took him months to give up testing the noose on five people. He nearly lost it when he went down to four, and they still got out. To make matters worse, no one survived the fall at four. At least at five, the first person was sometimes able to make it out with broken legs. At four, it was hopeless. They could hoist them faster, higher, and the fall was too high. As we talked, the noose above began swinging left to right in the breeze. Annalise explained, He tried everything, tightening the rope, Speeding up the process, turning heads in every which direction he could try, facing in, facing out, facing the side, side out, side out, everything. The swinging changed directions. It went forward and back, forward and back. She sighed. But it never worked. Prisoners would struggle, they'd twist free, and... Splat. On the ground. It was alternating now. Left to right, forwards and back, swinging incessantly. He was a stubborn man. He started binding people by the waist, but it just took one person to slip out of the noose and then... Splat. All four together. Fear spread through my body in a sudden splash as though I'd been dropped into a tub of ice water. The noose. The goddamn noose. The rhythm of its swing stopped being so regular. It went right, forward, right, back, left, forward, right, as though being pulled in every direction. I rubbed my neck. I tried to inhale, but there was a weight on my chest. Are you starting to have trouble breathing? Annalise asked. I gasped. Yeah, how did you know? She pointed up at the rope as she walked to the door. They say men can't stay in this room for more than a couple minutes because... There's nowhere in this watchtower that noose can't reach. I... I can't explain it. I really can't, but... I was struck with the fear she'd leave and lock the door behind her. Her keys were jangling. She had her hand on the door. In my mind's eye, I could see her closing it, but as much as I wanted to run for the exit, I felt this invisible bond wrapped around my throat, holding me in place. Come on, let's get you out of here, she said gently. Her soft voice and kind smile loosened the unseen noose and... I was able to jog out of the room, panting for air. She escorted me out, hand on my shoulder. I said nothing until we were outside in the cold rain. The number, I stuttered. What was the number? 
She held her palms to the sky and closed her eyes, inhaling deeply as though the rain were her lover. Hmm? The number of people that you can hang on a single noose. She looked back at me, her smile never losing warmth. Three, she said. With three heads, there's not enough wiggle room to escape. We left the property and sent our goodbyes back in town. I couldn't get it out of my head. The swinging noose, the vivid mental images of people hanging together, the sensation of something wrapped around my throat. Once I was alone, I undid my scarf and checked my neck. I expected to find rope burn or a bruise or something on my skin, but nada. On my way back to Halifax, I glanced back at the watchtower. I swear, even in the sheets of rain and dimming daylight, I could see three silhouettes staring down at me. I still visit hanging sites. That's probably never going to change. The only thing that changed is every time I see a noose that's even slightly looser than normal. I remember that little prison in Nova Scotia. And I feel a shot of adrenaline and just the slightest tightening on my throat. Please let me in. I'm so cold. Growing up, my best friend was Matthew Ramsey. He was a year older than me, but still in my grade. Not because he was stupid, but his father had died when he was in the fourth grade, and for a few months, Matt was having a lot of problems at home and at school. When he got held back and put in my class, we became fast friends, and it wasn't long before I was spending more time at his house than my own. Matt's mom was very nice, but she was always working most of the time, so that meant we wound up hanging out with Matt's uncle, Gene, more than anyone else. He left us to our own devices most of the time, but... If we were having a sleepover and Matt's mom had a late shift, Jean would come over and keep an eye on us until she got home. Those nights are some of my favorite memories of childhood. Hanging out with my best friend while his cool uncle cooked us hamburgers and told us stories he'd lived or heard during 20 years of traveling the world in the army. He was retired on disability when I knew him, and just looking at the pot-bellied, gray-haired man swigging a beer while absently poking at the grill... I had a hard time believing he'd ever been a soldier, much less a globe-trotting adventurer he told about in his stories. But when he settled down and started talking, everything seemed to magically change. Unlike a lot of adults, he seemed to understand and appreciate what we wanted to hear and were interested in. Tales of battle and exotic lands, guns and tanks, interesting people and dangerous creatures. As we spent time with him, I felt sure that he'd run out of stories, but he never did. In fact, in the last years I knew him, he started telling us about some of the stranger things he'd ever seen or heard of. If it was someone else, I'd have immediately written these stories off as fantasy, increasingly elaborate and sensational stories to entertain his maturing and potentially jaded audience of two. But Gene wasn't really that kind of guy. He was a good storyteller, but he was honest. And I never got the sense that he was embellishing anything beyond putting a slight polish on a potentially dull tell. 
And, while I can't say for sure of what he told us wasn't bullshit, what seems clear to me now is that one of his stories probably saved my life. We were going to camp out in the woods right behind Matt's house, and Gene had come over to hang out until we went to bed. He had made a small fire in the pit in the backyard, and after dinner, we all sat around it, staring into the fire while he told us about the time he'd spent up in Alaska. He said for the most part it was just cold and boring. The towns up there were small, and the people, while pleasant enough, tended to keep to themselves. The land was beautiful, but in an alien, almost hostile way that made him pine for the warm, dry hills of Arizona where he'd been stationed for years before this latest assignment. His job there wasn't even interesting, just handling requisitions and hanging out with the boss who spent most of his time drunk or asleep. Still, he told us, when his boss was awake and not too far gone, he was a pretty cool guy. He'd tell Gene stories about the people up there, local histories, myths, and legends, and it was from him that Gene had heard about the woman that would sometimes come to your door asking to be let inside because it was so very cold. The way my boss told it, he was working at a weather outpost north of Anchorage when a big snowstorm came in. He had supplies for a few days, but the third night he was starting to get nervous. He lived up north for a few months at that point, but this was the first time he'd really felt trapped by the weather. Between the increasing snow and the isolation, he admitted to letting out a scream when he heard a knock at the door. My boss was no rocket scientist, but he wasn't a fool neither. He knew no one was around for 20 miles or more, and the odds of someone being out in that kind of weather at night just made no sense. His first thought was that it was someone who had come to relieve him for some reason, but as he approached the door, he heard what sounded like a young woman's voice on the other side. Please let me in. I'm so cold. This threw him off. There was no young female enlisted locally that he knew of, and the more he thought, he realized he would have gotten a message beforehand if someone was coming up tonight. So who could this be? Heart pounding, he answered. Ma'am, who are you? I'm cold and lost. I got lost in the storm. Please... Let me in. It was so strange, but she sounded scared, and if you left her out there for much longer, she was apt to freeze to death. Still, two feet of snow had fallen since he'd cleared the front door earlier in the day. If he was going to get her in, he needed to get out there with a light and shovel to clear the way. Okay, just give me a minute and I'll be out there. He put on his outerwear and headed up the ladder to the roof hatch that was mainly used for accessing the equipment up top when the snow got too high to use the main door. He told me it really was bitterly cold, the coldest he could ever remember it being, though some of that was because he was so scared. He told me that part of that was him being scared for the girl, but only part. He said another part of him could sense something wasn't right. There was something strange and dangerous beyond just the oddity of a strange around the midnight cold. I said that was why he shined the light over the edge of the roof before he went down to clear the door. Gene gave me and Matt a nervous smile at this point, taking another sip of his beer before setting it aside. He said most of it was buried in the snow outside the door, but... Looking down, he could still make out the top of something's body. 
said it was huge, probably 500 pounds or more, with a segmented ivory shell like a lobster and furry white spider legs that sat tensed and ready, the highest arches like small drifts just breaking the snow's surface. The worst part, though, was its head. Because it wasn't a head at all, really. Over five feet tall and upright, the head had a slim and delicate shape covered in what looked like a dark poncho or a cloak. Gene glanced between us as he rubbed the side of his face. He said he could see a face in that cloak. A woman's face. The most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. Shifting in his chair, he went on. But it saw him too. This look he got, it was all in a couple of seconds, and by then the thing had noticed the light shining down and turned that head that looked like a woman up toward him. He told me he had been terrified by that point. Frozen to the spot, and some part of his brain that was still working thought she would say something else to him. Try to get him to come down. Gene puffed out a breath. But instead, it started to scream. He said the noise didn't come from the woman's mouth, but instead he saw puffs of snow along its body like steam escaping a pot, and the air was filled with this terrible screech. He knew it was angry, and it was going to get him. He got going then, made it to the hatch, locked it behind him, and got his gun ready in case the thing made it inside. She heard movement on the roof, but nothing ever trying to get through the door or the hatch. He stayed awake until sunrise and then radioed for help, using the excuse that he'd gotten bad sick. Matt and I watched him wide-eyed and terrified as he gave a small laugh and a shrug. And that was it. At least for the most part. They came and got him. There was no sign of anything wrong outside, and he never told anyone above him about it. Jean leaned forward into the fire. Until one night he was in town drinking and buddied up to one of the locals. They were swapping bullshit for a while and eventually he got comfortable enough that he told the guy about what had happened up at the weather station. Told me his drinking buddy got real sober real quick. Told him he was real lucky to be sitting there able to talk about it at all. I waved my hand at Jean like I was in class. So this dude knew what it was? Gene gave an uncertain nod. Maybe, maybe at least a little. Guy told him there weren't some fancy name for it, but it was just something strange and deadly that lived up there. Maybe other places too. He'd heard a few stories over the years, and he'd had some grandpa or whatever that claimed to have seen one. Some people said it was an evil spirit, others some kind of animal we don't know about or understand. But whatever it was, it was smart. Smart as a person and able to talk to you, to trick you. My boss just called it the liar. He said he'd gotten that from his buddy. I figured it was because it had that lure, that part of itself that it could make look and sound like a person. But he said no. It was because according to what he'd been told, the thing had certain rules it followed. and only preyed on things that invited it, and had been fooled by it to one extent or another. And whatever it said, 
It was always a lie. Always. He pointed a finger at me and Matt. Now that might sound obvious, but it's actually a pretty useful thing to remember. Because the way I understand it, it can't tell the truth. And it's compelled to talk, to lure, to try and trick you into letting it in so it can get you. So if you ask it questions the right way, things it can't not answer and things that give away its lie, you can figure out what it is without ever opening your door. Gene sat back up and gave a grin. I just hope nothing comes scratching at y'all's tent tonight. I hadn't thought about Gene in some time until three nights ago. Matt was diagnosed with leukemia at 14 and was gone two years later, and in the 20 years since, I haven't seen or spoken to his family over a couple of times on the internet. And yet, three nights ago, as I sat, cold and panicked, on the side of a dark road, Matt's uncle and that story came flooding back to me. I'd been driving in the worst snow I'd ever seen, much less tried traveling through, when I felt my car starting to slip on the road for what felt like the hundredth time. The snowstorm was unusual for where I live, and I didn't have snow tires or chains, but I was driving as slow and cautious as I thought the situation allowed. My wife was having contractions, three hours away. While I knew she'd already been checked in at the hospital, I wanted to be there as soon as I could get there safely. But I was an idiot. When the car hit a patch of ice, I overcorrected and slid off into a ditch. I was on a highway, but it was the middle of the night in a snowstorm, and I hadn't seen another car for at least half an hour. I tried to get the car back out on my own, but all that got me was wet and cold. Cursing, I called for a wrecker, finally getting one on the third number I tried. They were coming, but it would be about four hours based on the weather, my location, and the calls ahead of me. Looking at the gas gauge, I decided to run the car for just ten more minutes to boat up some warm air and then sit in the dark for a while to conserve fuel. Shivering, I tried to call the hospital to check on my wife and get her a message as to what happened, but I couldn't get the call to go through. I had plenty of charge left, but where I'd had three bars just a few moments before, now I was down to one bar that flickered like a dying candle flame. As I watched, it went out one last time and then didn't return. Maybe if I turned it off and turned it back... Please let me in. I'm so cold. I let out a scream and looked over at the driver's side window. Staring in was a small boy, his dark eyes wide with pleading terror as they met mine. Please, mister. Please let me in. I could see what looked like snot on his upper lip, and his pale blue lips were trembling as he begged me for help. My God, how'd he gotten out here? I needed to get him inside, turn the car on again, and then... I suddenly had a distant memory spark in the recesses of my mind. The orange glow of a fire pit lighting Gene's face as he told us about something that hunted out in the cold and the dark. The liar. I looked back at the kid. 
This was ridiculous. That story wasn't possible, and this child was going to freeze to death if I didn't hurry up and do something. Yeah, he looked like he had a hooded jacket of some kind, but it was well below freezing out there, and if... Swallowing, I smiled at the pale little boy staring in. How'd you get out here? The boy stared at me for a moment. My mom, she's got bad sugar and fell asleep. I couldn't wake her up. I went to go get help, but I got... He was crying now, pressing a small hand against the glass. What the fuck was I waiting for? I unlocked the car, but I still hesitated to open the door. I thought back to the story Jean had told. The thing was called the liar because it had to lie. It just wanted to trick you. But if you asked the right question, you could see through it. Taking a deep breath, I looked away from the boy. What's your name? M Matthew? People call me Matt. Please let me in. I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach, but when I looked up, the kid just looked worried and scared, not like he'd just said the name of my dead childhood friend. It was a coincidence, and I had to stop this and help him. My hand was on the latch, but I still hesitated. If Gene's story was real, what kind of question would work? Are you a little boy? Or a little human boy? The boy's eyebrows went up slightly. Yeah? Of course. Wait, I was dumb. If he was lying, he'd say yes. If he was telling the truth, he'd say yes. So that didn't help. Um. Okay. I was running out of time to waste on this. I could ask him if he wasn't a little boy, but it was the same problem, wasn't it? If he was a little boy telling the truth, he'd say no. If he was a monster that had to lie, he'd also say no. Fuck me, I just needed to grow a spine and open the door. Please, I'm getting sleepy and it scares me. I'm so cold. Shuddering, I found the latch again, determined to finally open the door and let the boy in. Yet... In spite of that, I heard myself asking another question. You're not lying just to get me to open the door, are you? I hesitated at the latch, waiting for him to be confused by the oddly worded question, or tell me no. Instead, there was a moment of silence, and when I looked up, I could see the boy's lips were pressed into a thin line. Yes. I frowned, taking my hand away again. Yes, you're not lying to me, or yes, you are. His lips began to tremble again. Please let me in. I'm cold. I needed to think. Him saying yes could mean anything. It was more of how he'd reacted, almost like he was angry at a sign of being caught. Still, that wasn't proof of anything. I needed to just... Are you outside of my car right now? When I met his eyes this time, I thought they seemed darker. Colder. What? Please, let me in. I felt a thrill of fear skitter up my back. Answer my question, please. Are you outside my car right now? 
The boy's sniffling stopped as a hard, cruel smile curled up the corners of his mouth. No. And then suddenly he was gone. I saw a blur of motion in the dark. I heard the rustling of some distant brush as something large pushed its way into the woods. But there was no other sign of the child or any other intruder as I sat alone in the freezing dark. After a couple of minutes, I got a cell signal back and checked on Peggy. She was doing fine so far, and they passed along my message that I'd be there soon. An hour later, the wrecker arrived. And if the man thought it was odd that I refused to get out of my car as he pulled me out of the ditch... He didn't seem to mind. As I write this, I've just gotten back from holding our new baby. He's a healthy little boy, and after just two days, I already love him so much. My wife asked if I wanted to name him Matthew after my best friend growing up, but I shook my head quickly. After she's home and rested, I'll try to explain why. Besides, it doesn't matter what we call him. He'll grow up good and strong and will be there to prepare him for a world that can be warm and wonderful, but also very strange and cold. A world where not everything is as it seems, and he has to be very careful, especially when inviting in a stranger from the dark. <laughs>